Hey, you up all night tossing, turning, mind racing, trouble getting to sleep, trouble falling asleep? Well, welcome. I believe, I suspect you're here because you have trouble falling asleep, getting to sleep. At least that's why I hope you're here. For the podcast that puts you to sleep, we do it with a uh, episode discussion, Game of Thrones episode discussion here. When Sleep With Me presents Game of Thrones. All you need to do is get in bed, turn on the lights, and press play. We're going to do the rest. What the rest, how, how the rest works is I'm going to create a safe place where you can set aside whatever's been running through your brain. Whatever's got you. Uh, let me tell you, I've, got, I've had a tough couple weeks with this uh, brain of mine. So I think I can relate to this situation that I'm trying to... I, not even at nighttime, even during the day. Don't know if I'm more aware of it, saying, Hey buddy, oh boy, oh boy, fire over here. Wait, but that's not actually a fire. That's just a form I had. Uh, and then I'm like, but now I forgot to pay my bills. Uh, so that, I don't know if anybody can relate to that stuff running through your brain when you're trying to go to sleep or during the daytime. I don't know if I could help you during the day. This is a podcast that helps you fall asleep. And what way I'm going to do it, what I mean by a safe place, is I'm going to start talking about this Game of Thrones episode. You listen. Ideally, it's going to be just moderately interesting enough to distract you from whatever's running through your brain, but not quite riveting enough to keep you engaged. So to engage you, but not retain you, maybe? I don't know. Like, kind of like... Uh, the teacher, you're like, yeah, I like this class. I like the idea of it. I don't even mind the teacher. But if you're going to give me an A anyway, why, why? And I say, well, just come to the lectures. Listen to me because that's, you know, it's, it's the uh, compact we have at this school here. You, But I'll give you an A if, if you come to class, even if you don't do anything but sleep. So I'm going to give you guys, you guys, I'm going to give you an A. Um if you fall, well, no, even if you don't fall asleep, I'll give you an A. So I don't know if that's, but, but I'm going to be that professor talking. You just kick back, listen, and uh, fall asleep whenever you feel like it. Your uh, worries, your troubles, they should just keep listening to me. You'll be distracted. You won't listen to them. Boom, you're out, hopefully. And, uh, you know, the, the, hopefully you don't sleep through the entire class, wake up in the middle of the next one and say, my underpants are dirty or something crazy that you could say in a lecture hall when you're sleeping. It's never happened to me, but, I mean, I heard about it. So that's why we're here with a podcast to put you to sleep. I'm going to talk about a Game of Thrones episode. Then I'm going to talk about, you know, just run through it. Then I'll say, well, this guy said this, and I just liked how his belt was shiny. And then we'll go into discussing what came up during the episode. They found out, was it chain mail? Why don't they call it ring mail? Oh, they do call it ring mail. Why don't they call it, uh, you know, spaghetti? Who who invented spaghettios? Is it, was there ever a Chef Boyardee? Wow, I'm getting questions that are coming up that I actually want answers to. I mean, myself, not you guys. But those are the questions you'd be like, well, I, I was curious who Chef Boyardee was until he started talking about it. And then I realized I was just, you know, if I heard, you know, if I heard about who Chef Boyardee was, Boyardee, you know, I might be interested. I'm in Australia. I don't know who the hell Chef Boyardee is. Uh, you know, I that's the podcast. I don't know. I'm the guy. 
trying to figure out who Chef Boy Boyardee is, but I can barely even say Chef Boyardee. Probably talking to people that are like, who, SpaghettiOs? Wasn't that outlawed in the EU in uh, 1978? Oh, no, they still serve that in America every day. I've been on di- I've been on the SpaghettiO diet a few times. Uh, not to lose weight, uh, because uh, there's just times in my life where I prefer to be. Not, not the cheapest diet, either. Um, that's it. That's why we're here. Uh not not to to not answer uh, to to distract you while we answer questions that aren't that important. I hope I help you fall asleep. We're on the web www.sleepwithmepodcast.com. Game of Drones episodes as a general like www.sleepwithmepodcast.com/drones. Hey, uh, you can get me on Twitter. That's a real good place to get a hold of me at dearest scooter. You can get me on Facebook. The podcast is on there. I'm going to try to post sleep-related articles there, retweet them or repost them. We got bloopers up there. Um, yeah, they're, they're up there. They're not exactly uh, strange. Um, you, you can email me. You can comment on the website. I'd love to hear from you. That's it. I'm going to do some thank yous. I'm trying to think what else I didn't cover in the uh housekeeping type stuff that I'm not going to cover in the thank yous. There was something, I don't know, I forgot already. Podcast, Game of Drones, put you, put you to sleep. That's at the top of my list always, Chef Boyardee. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Thanks for coming, and I hope I help you fall asleep. Uh, it's time for gratitude. Uh, Prayers of thankfulness, crone, sweet, sweet crone, miller, milling, uh, the grains above us, pot, you know, or in some alternate parallel of us, who are beyond gr- gr- grilling, a, gr- milling the grains. Maybe you grill them. Do you ever grill any grains up there, miller, or you save that for us? Uh, thankful too for you for your milling smith you're banging away and you know forging forging all for all you forge i'm thankful miller smith barky uh you're, you're you know what they call you're the trees the four i you know i see the forest and the trees now i used to just see the forest for the trees or the trees for the forest but now that I've gotten to know you, um, or now that I've let you get to know me, and I've you know wondered and, and supplicated in, in, into your uh, my construction of what you are in my mind, you know, thank you, thank you, by uh, Jester, thanks, buddy. You just you know, you're hilarious. Thank you. You guys want to report in, you know, all the great stuff. You know, great people in my life supporting me while I do this podcast. There's one man named Chris Post. He posts your sin. He's responsible for our music. Cats, I don't know if you're, now that you're in my world and no longer in any fictional universes that aren't my purview, just my gods, you know, anyone can believe in you. I don't have a right to that, but, uh, you know, check out his podcast. Sounds like an evil.com. There's a, Scotty and Jennifer doing our artwork. 
Warden Lady, gods, just like in your other world you've been in, we've got a royalty here. Keep an eye on them. Jonathan Shannon, hope they are well. We have, you know, all the other supporters, the regular supporters of the podcast, gods. Hopefully, Defrenestrator's feeling better. Because, you know, they could have, the royal, well, royal people can't usurp anything, I don't think. Well, I guess if you're not a king, and they're a lord and a lady, so I guess they could be. So Defrenestrator, hopefully, is on the men, gods. But I, you know, all the supporters of the podcast, we've had quite a week here at the podcast. I want to thank uh, people that sent letters, self-addressed stamped envelopes. But they had letters inside, not talking letters. Like another podcast that we do, but Mark, Annie, Sheila, Josh. Divine Miss M all sent me letters in the past week or two. Thank you. Uh, Mark Mark also included a, uh, this is not an icon I prayed to, gods, but a Lego, Jon Snow, and uh, his wolf, whose name escapes me, Iceface or something, says wolf's name. It's his sword. Snow, I don't want to say Snow because he's Jon Snow. I don't know. Sam said it once. He said, hey, uh... Wolfie, Pooh, uh, but I want to thank them for taking the time to send their letters and their, their stamping them, sealing them all, writing them up. Thank you so much. Uh, we also got some uh, wonderful reporting with some wonderful people take time to write about the podcast, support the podcast, and inquire. They said, hey, I'm curious about this guy. What the hell is he doing over there? Let me find out more about this uh, Sleep With Me podcast, or I've listened to it. So I want to thank Royson, who wrote an article at Motherboard, a division of Vice, or related to Vice. God's not a, the Vices again. Just don't don't be throwing her or any of us in the seven hells yet. It's a you know, media conglomerate. It's a place we get our news, God's okay. And she wrote a lovely, heartfelt article. Very nice about the podcast. Very in-depth. And guys, not only did, did, did Royson do it, but Chris did it too over at Fast Company. He took the time to inquire, to probe, to meander his own way, which was more interesting, both of their articles. Than, uh, and, and they were very in-depth, guys. I was so surprised and so pleasantly surprised, unlike when any bad news I get from you guys. Uh, this was great, so thank you both. If you guys want to check them out, they're out there, Motherboard or Fast Company. But then there was also one written by Sophie over at NovaPlanets.com in Francais, gods. Gods, that's another language here. I know where you guys were before they had languages. Uh, Francais, is a, that's just how I say it, but it French is the language. France is the country. And Nova Planets, the website, and Sophie wrote up uh, something nice about the podcast. Google Translate, uh, no offense to Brainiacs there, but it's not exactly, uh, uh, you know, I probably would have used it to take a test. I probably got a B or a C. So thank you, Sophie, for writing about the podcast. You have Francais. I would say uh, thank you in French, but I can't think of it right now. And I should, we, uh, ooh, we, uh, so, I'll think of it. I should have. Avita Zane? No, that's German. I'll think of it at some point, Sophie. So I thank you. Uh, another person I met at this uh, podcasters meetup is a Darsh. And he's got a podcast, Reboot Show, 
uh, I think it's uh, just search Reboot Show on your uh, he's on uh, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, iTunes. Make sure you pick the Reboot Show from Thoughtbot. It's got a green uh, icon on there. I think there's another Reboot Show. Uh, great show, great guy. Uh, go out and check his podcast. It's about like people changing their careers, especially if you're in the tech industry. But if you're in any industry, saying I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Let me. I, I just changed careers. I'm thinking about changing careers. Relatable stuff. Good interview skills. And this fine young man. So thank you, and it was a pleasure to meet him. I want to thank some people I heard from newer listeners. I heard from a ton of you this week. Uh, but uh, the amazing Bendara. Ben, Bender, Bendara, Chris D, Mary B, Tris H, uh, Brad F. Uh, some of these people are people I hadn't heard from a lot. Some people are new listeners. Brad, I'm still uh, pulling for you, buddy. All the people that commented about the articles when I shared them and retweeted them. And if you want to support the podcast and the wonderful writers that wrote these articles about the podcast, go seek them out and share them right from the uh the website they're on, and then check out their other. These are fine, fine young writers. They need our support. They're in creative enterprises called Journalism Gods. I don't know. I don't have time to explain it, but that's how it probably outlawed where you were from. Uh, but anyway, so check you guys check that out. Uh, Mitali, uh, Mitali with an M, the comments on face, uh, comments on the website. Thank you. And br dot Bronson, Bronson uh, commented about the podcast that uh, they listen to it on camping on windy mountains, crashing at people's houses after nightmares. Thank you for the review. Uh, God, just plenty more people I probably should be thanking, but you know, thank you for you know the ways you work. Uh, I want to sing that U2 song, but I, that real you gods work in mysterious ways. That didn't sound like U2, though. That's why I wasn't going to sing it. But then I got uh, I'm caught up in with, with joyous thankfulness for my supporters. And I know I owe it all to you guys somehow. Uh, so, and I, you know, all I know how to say is thank you, God, since you're God's. You know, that's as far as I know, at least I can do for you. So thanks. And, I, you know, I'll get back to you after this shit at the end of the show. Night. Oh, no, not night. Crone, wake up. we got a whole podcast to do. Hey, everybody, we're back. We're here to talk about, and now his watch has ended. And now his watch has ended. And, and uh, that's season three, episode four. We got six episodes left. I don't know how many weeks, but we're, you know... Should be under them. If you're listening to this, we should be under a month to a month and under two months to Game of Thrones kick off season five, which will be ready for season three. I got to give you a warning here if you haven't watched season three that at this point, uh, we're going to get in, there's it's unavoidable, we're going to get into spoilers. And I say this as a caring person who loves Game of Thrones and cares about, um, you know, our lives don't have to be spoiler-free, but this is... I made it through this season three without spoilers watching it. I'd get, I'd stopped reading the books because I didn't... I was like, I'm afraid of being spoiled. I'm a spoiled, rotten reader. Um, and I got to tell you, starting with this episode, there's some wonderful surprises. If you, if you don't know... If you know, if you know they're coming, it's fine. 
but really just some wonderful stuff starting with this episode. So I don't want to spoil it for anybody. I mean, you'd probably be asleep ideally anyway, but she's, I mean, there's some great stuff. So just a heads up. So this episode opens with Jamie with his hand around his neck. Yeah, just like uh, Albatross around uh, that guy's neck. And Jamie's getting picked on. He falls off his horse. He asks for water. The guy, the jerky guy, gives him um, horse pee. Jamie makes a move on him. There's all sorts of fighting and and stuff like that. Then we have the scene with uh, Varys. Varys. Uh, we... Uh, next up, we have the scene with Varys and Tyrion, which is one of the great scenes. This this scene is a slow burn, I think, is what you call it in the business. He Varys is surprised by Tyrion. He says, "Oh, whoa! I'm hey, what's up, man? I'm just opening this crate here." And Tyrion says, "I hope I was hoping we could speak of the events of Blackwater. Is this a wrong time?" He says, "On oh, no, us, a wonderful time." And then Tyrion's like, "I need proof. You know, my sister was attempting." An attempt on my life, and he's like, "I need to, I need to know what happened." And then uh, uh, Varys goes into a story. He goes, uh, "He goes before all this nastiness. I was going to tell you the story of how I got cut, like how I became a eunuch. Do you want to hear it still?" And he, I don't want, I don't even want to quote from it because it's such a great, great story. Well, I do want to quote from it. Uh, I don't want to ruin it. I guess what I said was, "In a traveled with a troop of actors through the free cities." One day in Mir, a certain man made a ma- my master an offer too tempting to refuse. And then he talks about, you just got to see it for yourself. I don't even want to. And then he says, uh, but he says this, he says, I, I, he says, the flames turned blue when I heard a voice answer his call. I still dream of that night, not of the sorcerer, not of his blade. I dream of the voice from the flames. Was it a god? A demon, a conjurer's trick, I don't know. But the sorcerer called and a voice answered. And ever since that day, I've hated magic and those who practice it. And then he says, you know, I, I feel they're talking about revenge. He says, I feel the need for actual revenge. And then he has another line, influence is largely a matter of purpose. Influence glow, grows like a weed. And then there's this huge slow burn reveal, which you got to just see for yourself. Uh, next up, they're shoveling. Uh, Night's Watch is uh, shoveling poop. Gren and the other guy that we like, but whose name I don't know. And at this point, it's kind of like a bit. I don't know his name. He's like shoveling's most of it. Then you got that short guy who's just stewing trouble. And then we have Gilly with her baby, and Sam wakes the baby. He says he's beautiful. She says, I don't have time for you. I got to spend this time with my baby. He says, well, what could I do? What can I, can I help him? She says, yeah, I want to save my baby. Then we have a scene, another scene of Bran running, and then caw, caw. And then uh, there's a tree, and then Jojen's there. And he says, you have to go after him. And he says, how? He says, you know how. And then Bran's in a tree. His mom's there. She's like, Brandon, yeah, stay out of trees. Promise me no more climbing. And then she she pushes him out of the tree, which is weird. Then we have uh, Roz and Varys talking about Podrick's uh, uh, lovemaking skills. And, and uh, Varys says, prodigies appear in odd places. And then they talk about Baelish and Sansa and his plan to go to the Eyrie and marry uh, whoever, the, whoever that 
to go to the area and mar- marry the, the the head of head lady there. And Roz is like, there's two feather beds there. Uh, so, you know, I know. And he's like, oh, who would you take a feather bed for? And then we have Joff, like, all uh, enthusiastically giving Marjorie a tour of dragon bones and the ashes and the tombs. And Circe and Olana are talking about the wedding. And you get a taste of this episode of Circe's, like, battle. One of the battles she's fighting is this, like, battle for recognition. And it says, uh, we mothers do what we can to keep our sons from the grave, but they do seem to yearn for it. We shower them with good sense, and it slides right off like rain off a wing. That's Oleana's line, and then Cersei says, and yet the world belongs to them. A ridiculous arrangement in my mind, Uh, Oleana. Cersei says, the gods have seen fit to make it so. It gets better. You got to check it out for yourself. And then there's like all these noise outside, and Marjorie and Joff go and wave to the people. And Marjorie says, "If you give your give them your love, they will return it a thousandfold." And then Marjorie, oh, this is wonderful acting here. I mean, always there is, but she gives she looks back at Circe and gives her this look as they step out. And it's just so wonderful. And then uh, we got Theon and the Mystery Man, a heartbreaking scene here where uh, the Mystery Man talks to Theon about watching him leave with his father and that's why he's helping him or watching him leave with the Starks. And then Theon talks about Rob and how Rob was so suited for his role and talks about faith and being ironborn. And he talks about paying the iron price and now, now he has to live with it. And then he lets it slip about the Stark boys. And he says, I just want to make my father proud. Maybe it's not too late. Maybe it's not too late, the other guy says. And then uh, Theon says, my real father lost his head at King's Landing. I made a choice and I chose wrong. Haunting words. And then ends up he's back where he started. Like this uh, mystery man has sold him out. And we have Jamie and Brienne sitting at a fire, and Brienne's like, eat. And he's like, nah. And she's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm dying. And she says, you need to live to take revenge. He says, I don't care about revenge. She says, you coward. A little misfortune and you give up. You have a taste, one taste of the real world where people have important things taken from them, and you whine and cry and quit. And then he eats. It's like, okay, good speech. And then she's like, hey, why did you help me anyway? And then after this, we have another brilliant scene with uh, Cersei and Tywin. Oh, boy. I mean, another one where he's uh, going for worst parent in the history of uh, fantasy. Uh, Worst parent, you know, worst, well, probably not the worst parent. Jerky, well, maybe not the jerkiest. Most... Subtle award for the most subtly played, cruel, cruelly subtly terrible parent award. It goes to uh, Tywin Lannister. But Cersei's sitting there uh, waiting for him. Then she sighs and she's breathing really loud. And he's like, uh, "You're still here? Yes. Why?" And she kind of launches into her battle here. She says, uh, does it ever occur to you that I might be the one who deserves your confidence and your trust and not your sons? Not Jamie or Tyrion, but me. 
Years and years of lectures on family and legacy, the same lecture really, just with tiny, tedious variations. Some venom in there for that. Did it ever occur to you that your daughter might be the only one listening to them, living by them? That she might have the most to contribute to your legacy that you love so much more than your actual children? And then he says, oh, all right, uh, I'll give you some attention. You could contribute. And then she says, well, Marjorie's a problem. And he says, but Marjorie, we, your son's the problem. She, she at least can contribute him. I wish you knew how to manipulate him. And then it's ice cold. He says, I don't distrust you because you're a woman. I distrust you because you're not as smart as you think you are. And then you're like, wow, this guy is uh, this guy's a, a number. No, what, a, what an ass. And then we have old Anna sitting in the garden, and she's like, eh, how many gold roses are you guys going to you know, knit? And she's like, I'm so sick. She goes, why don't we have a good family saying, like, uh, there's this uh, growing strong. She's like, uh, we do not sow. That's uh, Or winter is coming. Now there's just some badass sayings. Ours is weak. And then she has this subtle, subtle, lovely moment. She says, look, little doves or little loves, a spider in the garden. I mean, she says about a billion times better than me. And then there's Varys, and they have a wonderful exchange with wines like, uh, she says, are you trying to seduce me? What happens when the non-existent pumps against the decrepit? A question for the philosophers. And then she gives them a hard time. Then they go for a walk and they talk about Sansa and Baelish and keeping an eye. Who's going to keep an eye on Sansa? Who's, you know, who wants what? And Varys is, uh, you know, wants to defend the, keep the nation safe from uh, Baelish. And she's like, well, what's that? And then we have a scene with Marjorie kind of trying to befriend Sansa, Sansa. Talking about maybe marrying Loris and moving out to uh, wherever they're from. I can't remember, River, um, Tomato Town or something. And they would be sisters, Highgarden. And then we have a Now His Watch Has Ended scene where they're getting rid of, you know, somebody's passed away. And uh, the guy who we don't know his name says, he knows the dead guy's name. He says his name was Bannon. And there's this wonderful fire. And then Mormont goes to make a speech. He says he was from, uh, and then our buddy says, uh, down White Harbor Way. And then Mormont says, you know, he kept his vows the best he could. You know, now his watch is ended. And then you got more crows sowing distrust. They go back into Craster's keep, and Craster is, uh, you know, talking to Mormont like a, just a jackass. He's like, oh, you got one son, I got 99 sons, blah, blah, blah. And then Craster loses his temper. Somebody says, well, whose throat are you going to cut, man? He says, I want everybody out of here. Wait outside. And then we meet a character that uh, of almost all the characters uh, in Game of Thrones, small, smaller part characters. I mean, talk about stealing the show. Carl Tanner is the character we meet. He, uh, for such a, a, a smaller uh part that doesn't play a huge role that I know of in the, the greater plot and a terrible he's a terrible man but he's just wonderful acting wonderful as far as 
I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't love him in a way. I want to be best friends with him, but I do love this Carl Tanner character. And he says, uh, he says, we're not going outside. It's cold outside and there's nothing to eat. There's sawdust in the bread. And uh, Craster says, I'll cut the hands off the next person that complains. He's bullying them. And this is, I think, a, a important scene because Mormont seems to back down again. He didn't know the dead guy's name. You know, he's he's made a lot of mistakes, and I, I don't know if there's an answer to this, what's, what's going on with him, but he again backs down, and he's like, okay, let's go outside. But Carl Tanner is the kind of guy he doesn't back down. And the guy says, go ahead, somebody call me a bastard. That's what Craster says. And Carl Tanner says, in like slow motion, he says, you are a bastard. And then he goes on to say a lot worse stuff than that. And then there's this huge fight. Craster, Mormon, they don't make it. Sam grabs Gilly and runs. And, you know, whole uh, chaos. Then we go from chaos to, like, uh, a merry uh, brotherhood without banners uh, singing. They're going looking for their secret hideout, a place where neither wolves nor lions can prowl. Then we make uh, Beric Dondarrion. And him and the hound get into a bit, and the hound says, you're fighting for for ghosts. And then Beric Bondarian says, like, an A-team moment, he says, we are ghosts. He says, you guys pray on the weak, we defend them. And he says, we've all been reborn in the light of the one true God. And then they go off, and he says, he, they're talking about the mountain, but they're throwing the hound in. He's like, whoa, 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 is it being born a Clegane a crime? He's like, don't pin my brother's uh, bad things on me. I'm I'm innocent. I just, you know, I have to follow Prince's orders. And then uh, Arya's having nothing. She's like, you took out Micah, the butcher's boy. Oh, yeah. And then Hound uh, says, it's not my place to question Prince's. Beric Dondarrion's having none of it. He's like, okay, well, yeah, I consider you a trial by combat. And then the hound is like, is this a little girl, the bravest one you have? Who's going to take me? And Beric Dondarrion says, oh, uh, she is probably the bravest one here, but but I'll I'll fight you. Or he says, I, but it's me you'll fight. Then we get this opening of the doors and a view of Khaleesi and her posse, which is totally badass. And she's taking possession of the unsullied. You got that stupid jerk, uh, Krasny, Craster and Krasny. I wonder if they're related somehow. And she's taken out her dragon. I think Dracarys is the name of that one. And she gives him the dragon. He's on like a leash. And he gives her the whip that, you know, shows who's commander of the Unsullied, I guess. And then this, for me, was one of the greatest reveals uh, stunningly wonderful reveal and then this scene here but he's like still complaining about her going off and then it's revealed that she could speak Valerian the whole time and she knew everything this Krasny was saying and he's because he's complaining about the dragon or something she says a dragon is not a slave Valerian is my mother tongue and then she says unsullied slay every man Slay every man that holds a whip. And then we, she just says, Dracarys, and the dragon toasts Krasny up like a freaking burnt uh, marshmallow. And then there's a shot afterwards. There's all this dust and smoke and, and a 
like a sunset type light, and we have Khaleesi up high, and then Jorah is looking up at her. It's just amazing. And then she goes out and she mounts her white horse. She sets the men free, and they say, "Well, you know, we're gonna fight for you." She shows she's a true leader. And then she just tosses the whip aside, and her and her dragons and her troops go on the march. And uh, that's the uh, that's the end of that episode. Wonderful, wonderful episode. Season three, man. Oh boy, I mean these scenes. A couple slow. Uh, a couple of surprises. You had Varys at the top of his game. Oleana, Cersei. Jeez, it doesn't get any better than this. Seriously, it doesn't. All right, so one of the opening scenes is shows Jamie on this horse with his uh, his sword hand around his neck. And I couldn't, you know, it's tough to miss the symbolism of it being around his neck. And thinking about an albatross around his neck, and then like you start to think, well, was this sword hand is that his albatross or not? But let's not go that far. Let's start with, what does it mean? You know, I've never heard of an albatross around his neck. And uh, so I went over to uh, phrases.org.uk, an albatross around one's neck, meaning a burden which some unfortunate person has to carry. Well, that's certainly true. Uh, The phrase refers to lines from the poem The Rime of the Ancient Mariner by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, in which the mariner who shoots an albatross is obliged to carry the burden of the bird hung around his neck as punishment for and a reminder of his ill deed. Coleridge published a work in 1798 in the collection of poems that is generally accepted as being the starting point of the Romantic movement in English literature. Lyrical Ballads with a few other poems. So I'm going to read a little bit from um, part of the text, which we've read before. This is a popular poem that has come up before on the uh, the podcast. So we've read it before, but I'm going to go. This is a long poem. So we're going to go to the end of part two of this poem, and we're going to read the very end of part two into part three. I know you guys like poem, you know, me reading poems, so... And then we'll see how long, you know, if we have time, we'll talk about the poem itself. Otherwise, it's, it'll probably come up again. So I'm going to read from part, the end of part one into part two. At length did cross an albatross, through the fog it came. As if it had been a Christian soul, we hailed it in God's name. It ate the food it never had eat, and round and round it flew. The ice did split with a thunder fit. The helmsman steered us through. And a good south wind sprung up behind, the albatross did follow, and every day for food or play came to the mariner's hollow. In mist or cloud, on mast or shroud, it perched for his vespers nine. Whiles all the night through fog smoke white glimmered the white moon shine. God save the ancient mariner from the fiends that plague thee thus. Why lookest thou so with my cross bow? I shot the albatross. Part two, the sun, uh, the sun now rose upon the right, and out of the sea came he, still hid in mist, and on the left we went down to the sea. And the good south wind still blew behind, but no sweet bird did follow, nor any day for food or play came to the mariner's hollow, and I had done a hellish thing, and would work, and it would work him woe, for all averred I'd killed the bird that made the breeze to blow. Ah, wretch, they said, 
the bird to slay that made the breeze to blow. Nor dim nor red like God's own head the glorious sun oppressed. Then all averred I had killed the bird that brought the fog and mist. Twas right, said they, such birds to slay that bring the fog and mist. The fair breeze blew, the white foam flew, the furrowed followed free. We were the first ever burst into that silent sea. Down dropped the breeze, the sails dropped down, twas sad and was twas sad as sad could be, and we did speak only to break the silence of the sea. All in a hot and copper sky, the bloody sun at noon, right up above the mast did stand no bigger than the moon. Day after day, day after day, we struck, nor breath nor motion, as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. The very deep did rot, O Christ, that ever this should be. Yea, slimy things did crawl with legs upon the slimy sea. About, about, and reel and rout, the death fires danced at night. The water, like a witch's oils, burnt green and blue and white. And some in dreams assured were of the spirit that plagued us so, nine fathoms deep he had followed us from a land of mist and snow. And every tongue through utter drought was withered at the root. We could not speak no more than if we had been choked with soot. Ah, well, well a day, what evil looks had I from old and young. Instead of the cross, the albatross around my neck was hung. So that's a little bit from it. From uh, Wikipedia's Rhyme of Ancient Mariner is the longest poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. There's a plot summary if you want to catch the plot. It also includes some beautiful uh, wood engravings by uh, Gustave Doré, who does a lot of the ones that were, you know, helped inspire uh, uh, some of the Get Bessos episodes. So that's cool. Background. The poem may have been inspired by James Cook's second voyage of exploration, 1772 to 75, of the South Seas and Pacific Ocean. Coldridge's tutor, William Wales, was an astronomer on Cook's flagship and had a strong relationship with Cook. On this second voyage, Cook crossed three times into the Antarctic Circle to determine whether the fabled Great Continent exists to determine whether the fabled great southern continent existed. Critics have also suggested that the poem may have been inspired by the voyage of Thomas James into the Arctic. Some critics think that critic some critics think that Coolridge drew upon James's account of the hardship and lamentation in writing the rhyme of the ancient mariner. According to Williams Wordsworth, the poem was inspired while Coolridge Wordsworth and Wordsworth's sister Dorothy were walking through the Quantock Hills in Somerset in the spring of 1798. The discussion had turned to a book Wordsworth was reading, A Voyage Round the World by Way of the Great South Sea, 1726 by Captain George Shevlock. In the book, a melancholy sailor, Simon Hatsley, shoots a black albatross. As they discuss Shevlock's book, Wordsworth proffers the following developmental critique to Coolrich. 
which importantly contains a reference to tutelary spirits. Suppose you represent him as having killed one of these birds on entering the South Sea, and the spirits of these regions take upon them to avenge the crime. By the time the trio finished the walk, the poem had taken shape. Bernard Martin argues in The Rime of the Ancient Mariner and the authentic narrative that Coleridge was also influenced by the life of Anglican clergyman John Newton, who had a near-death experience aboard a slave ship. The poem received mixed views from critics, and Coleridge was once told by a publisher that most of the book's sales were to, sales were to sailors who thought it was a naval songbook. Coleridge made several modifications to the poem over the years. In the second edition of Lyrical Ballads, published in 1800, he replaced most of the archaic words. And then uh, Wordsworth has some ancient, uh, interesting comments about it. Uh, Wordsworth wrote to Joseph Cottle in 1799, From what I can gather, it seems ancient mariner has, upon the whole, been an injury to the volume. I mean that the old words... I mean that the old words and the strangeness of it have deterred readers from going on. If this volume should come to a second edition, I would put it in its place. Some little things that would be more likely to suit common taste. However, when Lyrical Ballads was reprinted, Wordsworth included it despite Coleridge's objection, saying, The poem of my friend has great defects. First, the principal person has no distinct character. There's good lessons in here, actually. First, the principal person has no distinct character, either in his profession of mariner or as a human being, who, having been long under the control of supernatural impressions, might be supposed himself to partake of something supernatural. Secondly, and this is important for anybody creative, that he does not act but is continually acted upon. Thirdly, the events having no necessary connection do not produce each other. And lastly, the imagery is somewhat too laboriously accumulated. Yet the poem contains many delicate touches of passion, and as indeed the passion is everywhere true to nature, a great number of the stanzas present beautiful images and are expressed with unusual felicity of language and the versification Though the meter itself is unfit for long poems, is harmonious and artfully varied, exhibiting the most powers of that meter in every variety of which it is capable. It has therefore appeared to me that these several merits gave the poem a value which is not often possessed by better poems." So interesting. I'm not a, a heavily knowledgeable about old poetry, but uh, I don't know. I like the, the poem, and it keeps coming up uh, for Game of Thrones, so we'll keep talking about it. All right? This is one I look up. Uh, I think Theon in this episode thinks he's at Deepwood Mott, M-O-T-T-E. Uh, it's the stronghold—this is from Game of Thrones wiki—the stronghold of House Glover, a vassal house— Holding fealty to House Stark of Winterfell, the castle is located northwest of Winterfell in the Wolfswood, near the coast of the Bay of Ice. This is where, uh, in season two, having declared himself king, Balon, Bage, Balon Greyjoy sends his daughter Yara with a fleet of 30 ships to seize Deepwood Mott. She replies she always wanted a castle of her own. Later, Yara visits Winterfell, having successfully captured the castle of Deepwood Deep Mott. 
She points out to Theon that her castle lies close to the sea and can be easily taken and reinforced at will. While Winterfell is too far inland to be held indefinitely, she urges him to ba abandon the castle and return to Deepwood Mott with her before heading home, but he rejects her advice. And But that's where he thinks he's going in this episode. He's not. Um, uh, maybe. I don't think he's going to Deepwood Mott. Not going to Deepwood Mott. So that's Deepwood Mott. Uh, I don't know what made me research this. I don't know if it's the Lord of Light uh, that the uh, Brotherhood of Without Banners is talking about, the eternal light of the Lord of Light, but I, I researched this, and um, it's an oldie, old, so old, but I still remember it somehow. Uh, here's the lyrics. Call my name, call my name, call my name. Close your eyes, give me your hand, darling. Do you feel my heart beating? Do you understand? Do you feel the same, or am I only dreaming? Is this burning, an eternal flame? I believe it's meant to be, darling. I watch you when you're sleeping. Well, that's weird. You belong with me. Oh, boy, this is a troubled relationship. Or am I only dreaming? You belong with me. Do you feel the same, or am I only dreaming? Is this burning an eternal flame? Oh, I don't know, man. Oof. Say my name. Sun shines through the rain, my whole life so lonely, and come and ease the pain. I don't want to lose this feeling. Call my name, call my name, call my name. Say my name, sun shines through the rain. My whole life so lonely, and come and ease the pain. I don't want to lose this feeling. Close your eyes, give me your hand, darling. Do you feel my heart beating? Do you understand? Do you feel the same? Am I only dreaming, or is this burning, an eternal flame? Close your eyes, give me your hand, darling. It kind of repeats two more times. And that's um, Eternal Flame, is that the name of that one? Eternal Flame by uh, Billy Steinberg, Tom Kelly, and Susanna Hoffs, which was... Uh, According to Wikipedia, a ballad and love song by the Bengals from 88, 1988, came a hit in 89, peaking at number one on the chart in nine countries, including Australia, Netherlands, UK, and the US. It was written by Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly and Susanna Hoffs. With this song and Walk Like an Egyptian, the Bengals became the third only woman group to score multiple number ones in the United States after the Supremes. And the Shirelles. Unlike the rest of the more up-tempo songs on their album Everything, Eternal Flame is a ballad. Co-writer Billy Steinberg describes it as Beatles meets the birds. Oh boy, oh boy, <laughs> sorry bro. Uh, the song was inspired by two eternal flames, one at the gravesite of Elvis Presley the Bengals saw when visiting Graceland, the other at a local synagogue in Palm Springs, which Steinberg attended as a child. Steinberg recalled the song facts. Susanna was talking about the Bengals visiting Graceland, and she said there was some kind of shrine to Elvis that included some kind of eternal flame. As soon as those words were mentioned, I immediately thought of the synagogue in the town of Palm Springs, California, where I grew up. 
I remember during our Sunday school class I would walk through the sanctuary. There was one little red light, and they told us it was called the Eternal Flame. It spent one week at number one on the Billboard Hot 100, blocking Millie Vanilli's Girl You Know It's True. From reaching the summit position, it proceeded at number one. It was preceded by Mike and the Mechanics, The Living Years, and succeeded by Rock Sets, The Look. It also topped the U.S. Contemporary chart for two weeks. There's more about that. Um, huh, this is interesting. I don't know if this is actual fact, uh, but the song is mentioned is mentioned as popular, being popular in the Philippines, and like Daryl Hall and John Oates, I can't go for that. No can do. Internal. This doesn't even. I can't believe this is in here. It says the song is immensely popular in the Philippines, and like Hall and Oates, I can't go for that. No can do. Eternal Flame has been played more than two million times in its lifetime there. What is there, like a Philippines song tracker? I don't, that's strange. I mean, not that I mean, not that you would like it in the Philippines, not like it in the Philippines. Is, there, is this burning? So I don't know why I picked that song, but I, you know, but I just thought I'd share it. It probably had to do with the Lord of Light. What else is eternally flaming in this episode? Um, uh, open the box. Yeah, what's inside your box, Varys? Oh, it's a spoiler. It's a wizard. Is he in trouble? I would say he is. That was an on key, though. Uh, what else happened in this episode? I can't remember. Well, there's a lot of flames at Master Krasny. He's not burning like an eternal flame, is, you know, the stuff. Okay, let's move on. Uh, so there was trouble at Craster's Keep for sure. And I was like, is this a mutiny? Is mutiny only on land? And then did I read a book about a mutiny? Which book was it about mutinies? Those were all questions I had. So let's let's get them answered, you know. Uh, so mutiny, according to Wikipedia, is a criminal conspiracy among a group of people, typically members of the military or a crew of any ship. You should also note I'm reading Moby Dick right now, slowly. Am listening to it to go to sleep. Uh, you know, spoiler alert: the a big read uh, recommended by a few of you. Thank you. Uh, maybe you should listen to this podcast. Clearly, uh, to openly oppose, change, or overthrow a lawful authority to which they are subject. The term is commonly used for rebellion among mem- members of the military against their superior officers, but occasionally can refer to any type of rebellion against authority figure. Yeah, why don't we replace? Why don't we take? An, why don't we put the mutiny in anarchy? What do you guys say? Oh, you're you guys are supposed to be asleep. We don't have time for that. During the Age of Discovery, mutiny particularly meant open rebellion against the ship's captain. This occurred. They have some examples, but we're going to dig into the examples. Uh, penalty: most country, countries typically punish mutiny with harsh penalties. You know, pretty harsh. We we would defenestrate you here. Except I'm in the you know this little closet, so there's not a window, and we're on the ground floor. We'll figure it out. So let's shoot over to history. From, I think it's from the HistoryChannel.com. History.com. 
uh, six famous naval mutinies. This is written by Evan Andrews, November 6, 2012, History Lists. A uh, few accusations in military history, maritime history were more serious than the charge of mutiny. You friggin' mutineers. Yet that didn't stop countless sailors from attempting open rebellion on the high seas. Most of these mutinies were violent outbursts provoked by poor morale or mistreatment. But others helped inspire revolutions and even toppled governments. Get the facts on six of history's most ferocious naval rebellions. Number one, coming in top in the charts at number one mutiny, mutiny on the bounty. The 1789 mutiny on the bounty saw a rebellious crew hijack their ship and build their own island community. Commanded by William Bly, the HMS Bounty left England in December 1787 on a mission to collect breadfruit saplings in the South Pacific. During a five-month layover in Tahiti, many of the ship's crew became enamored with island life and even married the local women. They often increasingly became increasingly dissatisfied with Bly, who often flogged his men for dereliction of duty. Shortly after the bounty left Tahiti in April 1789, a group of disgruntled crew members revolted and took their commander prisoner. Led by Master Mate Fletcher Christian, the mutineers forced Bly and 18 loyalists into a small launch and abandoned them at sea. Amazingly, amazingly, Bly eventually led this dinghy on a 3,600-mile voyage to a safe port in Timor. He would go on to weather two more mutinies during his long... Who the hell gave him a boat after that? And then after the second mutiny, that guy should be mutant. That, he should, that guy should be... Oh, man. Uh, now in command of the bounty, the mutineers sailed for the island of Tubai before returning to Tahiti. Some of the men who remained on the island were later captured by the Royal Navy, but Christian's small band of flowers, followers continued sailing in search of a safe place to hide along with a group of Tahitians in 1790. They settled on Pekarin, an isolated island in the South Pacific. The last of the rebels died on Pekarin in 1829, but descendants of the Bounty Mutineers still live on the island to this day. I may have read a book about that, but I'm not positive. The Batankin Mutiny. Although it initially Barked, it was initially sparked by a mundane argument over food. The Tankin mutiny became one of the pivotal events in the Russian Revolution of 1905. The revolt occurred during the Russo-Japanese War when the 700 commune crewmen of the battleship Potenkin, is that Potenkin, I think, were given rations of borscht made from maggot-ridden meat, told to eat the tainted broth or face punishment, the soldiers rebelled. Good for you guys. Under the leadership of a revolutionary mariner named Afonso Matushenko, the crew killed, oh dear, man, you didn't have to do that, half the ship's officers in a bloody shootout before commanding, commandeering, commanding, commandeering, the Patankin and the torpedo boat Ishmael. Hmm. Uh... A Russian's black, Russia's Black Sea fleet was soon mobilized to crush the mutineers, but their crews were sympathetic to the plight of the Tankin soldiers and refused to fire on them. Matushenko and his triumphant rebels would go on to sail for a total of 11 days before surrendering 
the battleship in Romania. Most of the crewmen remained in exile there, but some later returned to Russia only to be arrested and punished. The Patanka Mutiny was later immortalized in the 1925 silent film Battleship Patankin and was a significant influence on the 1917 revolution that led to the Soviet Union's creation. Next up, would you believe it, the Hermione, Hermione Mutiny. It did not take place in the fictional world of Harry Potter, though. It took place on the night of September 21, 1797. The Royal Navy vessel Hermione, Hermione uh, was trolling the Caribbean when the crew initiated the bloodiest mutiny in British naval history. Furious at the draconian punishments meted out by their captain, Hugh Piggott. Oh boy, who's choosing the? Who, I gotta get the royal. Somebody get the Royal Navy on the phone from the past. I guess they didn't have phones, but you know, get him on the horn. What the hell are you guys doing with Bly and Piggott? Uh, roughly thirty men split into groups and launched a coordinated attack on their superiors, the rebels. Many drunk on rum. That's the best way to stage a mutiny. I mean, count me in. Attacked Piggott in his cabin and then uh, took out the officers. Once in control of the ship, they dragged the rest of the officers to the main deck. Those whom the crew approved of were spared. The rest were tossed overboard. Uh, knowing they could never return to England, the mutineers searched for LaGuardia in modern-day Venezuela. Claiming they had merely marooned their officers in a dinghy, they agreed to turn Hermione over to the Spanish in exchange for asylum. British authorities later apprehended a few dozen of the mutineers based on tips from informants, but over 120 evaded capture. Hermione, Hermione would go on to sail under the Spanish flag until 1799 when the British HMS, surprise, get recaptured in a daring night raid. Can't make this stuff up. Bly, Piggott, Henry Hudson, in the Discovery Mutiny. Uh, British explorer Henry Hudson made four famous voyages to the United States and Canada, but his tireless efforts to locate the Northwest Passage ultimately provoked his crew to rebel against him. In 1610, Hudson led his ship, Discovery, to the frozen waters, there's his mistake right there, of modern-day Canada, in an attempt to find a new western route to Asia. While the explorers succeeded in locating Hudson Bay, later named in Hudson's honor, their ship became lodged in a pack of ice and pack, their ship became lodged in pack ice, forcing them to spend a treacherous winter ashore. Yeah, that'd be good enough for me. Mutiny, that guy. By the time the ice had finally cleared in 1611, the men's morale was dangerously low. Hudson wanted to continue searching for his passage, but he'd alienated his crew, many of whom believed the captain was hoarding food. Starving and desperate to return home, the crew revolted. After commandeering the ship... The sailors forced Hudson, his son, and seven other men into a small boat and abandoned them in the Hudson Bay. The mutineers then steered Discovery towards England. But along the way, they, you know, got rid of some more of them. The fate of Hudson and his fellow castaways remains a mystery. Wow, I never knew this. This is cool. Wow, history. I should have paid attention. A subsequent expedition found a small shelter 
I mean, you could make, we, what do we got? How many? Four mutinies? Two of them have been made into movies. Uh, uh, subsequent. And, and then you have the guy, what's it? Uh, with the piggot, what was that one? Hermione, like tracking them back down. That's, that's good stuff. Uh, remains a mystery. A subsequent expedition found a small shelter that may have been built by the maroon explorers, but the you know they didn't find them. The Keel Mutiny, K I E L, I before E, except after C. Is that a way? Okay, so Keel. Germany's Keel Mutiny began as a sailors' rebellion and eventually sparked a German revolution and the end of World War One. The uprising began in October 1918 when Germany's exhausted sailors learned of a plan to launch a last-ditch attack against the British Royal Navy, unwilling to take part in what they saw as a hopeless mission. The crew at the port of Wilmershaven, well, uh, crews at the port of Wilmershaven simply ignored their orders and refused to prepare their ships for battle. When the protest ringleaders were rounded up and arrested, it triggered a bloody mutiny. That soon spread to the city of Kiel. These early demonstrations succeeded in scuttling the Germany's, German Navy's attack plans. But on November 3rd, the mutinies had blossomed into a revolution. In Kiel, thousands of people occupied ships and buildings, seized control of the whole city. Inspired by a communist revolution in Russia, they also formed councils that demanded rights for soldiers and workers. The rebellion proved contagious and similar uprisings soon sprang up throughout Germany within a matter of days after the German war effort crumbled, and Kaiser Wilhelm abdicated his throne, paving the way for the eventual rise of the Weimar Republic. Uh, coming in at number six, the SS Columbia Eagle Mutiny. One of the only shipboard mutinies in American history occurred during the Vietnam War. In March 1970, two merchant marines named Clyde McKay and Alvin Glekowski held their captain at gunpoint, commanding, commandeered, after all, that word, the supply ship Columbia Eagle. Abandoning most of the crew and lifeboats, the two hijackers changed course and stir, steered toward the neutral nation of Cambodia. After arriving in the port of Xi'an, Oaksville, the mutineers informed authorities they had seized the ship and its cargo of 10,000 tons of napalm. Oh, these guys might be heroes as an act of protest against the Vietnam War. Unfortunately for McKay and Glikowski, their arrival in the Cambodia coincided with the start of a civil war that later led to the rise of the pro-American Khmer Republic. Initially given asylum, the two hijackers soon found themselves prisoner of Prime Minister Lon Knoll's right-leaning government. Glakowski was later re released and surrendered at the U.S. Embassy, and the Columbia Eagle was returned to the American authorities. McKay, however, escaped from Cambodia custody along with U.S. Army deserter named Larry Humphrey. The two fled north, hoping to join the communists, Khmer Rouge. Is that right? Rouge? Rouge? As freedom fighters, but were reportedly taken out by guerrillas. Here's a little did you know from history.com. Sea captains often punished the rebellious crew members by marooning them on deserted islands. One of the most famous examples came in 1520 during Ferdinand Magellan's circumnavigation of the globe. 
after learning that Captain Juan de Cartagena and a priest named Pedro Sanchez de la Reina were planning a mutiny, Magellan simply abandoned them at Port St. Julian in Patagonia, Patagonia, in Patagonia with only a small supply of bread and wine. The doomed mutineers were never seen again. In another case, Scottish privateer Alexander Selkirk spent four years marooned on an island near Chile before being rescued in 1709. His story later influenced the Daniel Defoe novel, Robinson Crusoe. You know, in the early days of podcasts, I used to like to read lists, especially with my terrible pronunciation. So I'm just going to read through a list of uh, famous mutinies. Sack of Antwerp, Batavia, Corkbush Field Mutiny. Banbury Mutiny, Bishopgate Mutiny. Uh, this is the 18th century. HMS Hermione, we know about. HMS Bounty. Curibquai Baron. Spithead and Noor Mutinies. The uh, Vleatier Incident. Uh, the Fort Riscoli Malta Incident. Indian Rebellion. La Amistad. The Sharon. The Globe. The Globe Mutiny of 1824, the Cavett Mutiny of 1872, the USS Summers, the Brazilian Naval Revolt, the Patankin uh, Revolta de Chibata, the Guyamas Mutiny, the Curag, C-U-R-R-A-G-H, Curag Incident, the Atepel's Mutiny, the French Army Mutinies uh, after the Nivelle Offensive, the Williams Shaven Mutiny, Black Sea Mutiny, the Kronstadt Rebellion, Army Mutiny, and the Irish Army Crisis, the Inver Gordon Mutiny, the Mutiny aboard the uh, Zavan Province. The Cocos Island Mutiny, Port Chicago Mutiny, the Sonderburg Denmark Mutiny, post World War II demobilization strikes, Royal Indian Naval Mutiny, the SS Columbia Eagle Incident, the Storo Storos Hevoy Mutiny, the Velos Mutiny, the Operation Blue Star, Oakwood Mutiny, uh, Fort Benefaco Crisis, the Bangladesh Rifles Revolt, the Yorkshire Regiment Sit-In Protests. So that's a list of some mutinies. Uh, Robin Hood is something I was thinking about when I think about these uh, the Brotherhood Without Banners. I'm like, these guys are pretty merry. Didn't Robin Hood, was it Maid Marian or was it the Merry Men? And I was like, Robin Hood, they say, uh, with the guy at the eye patch, I'm sorry, sir, I forgot your name. Uh, it'll come to me. But he says, you know, in the, you know, we're the ghosts if, you know, if there's a farmer in need and, a, you know, a Clogane picking on him, well, we could be there. We might be there to help. You know, we're here to, you know, working for the the agrarian working class. Uh, or something like that, he says, you know. So I was like, yeah, that kind of sounds a bit like Robin Hood. So let's do a little Robin Hood research. What do you say? This comes from the History Channel, uh, history.com. 
uh, the real Robin Hood. This might have been a special they did. I don't see an author here. This is from history.com, uh, the real Robin Hood. The, oh, wait, here's site. Oh, I never clicked on this. Interesting. Author is history.com, staff, uh, published in 2010. And the access date, oh, that's uh, that's me accessing it. Now, I, unfortunately, a commercial came up there. <laughs> I can't get it to close. Oh, boy. Okay, come on, buddy. Come on, close. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, the subjects of ballads, books, and films. Robin Hood has proven to be one of the most popular culture's most enduring folk heroes over the seven course of 700 years. The outlaw from Nottinghamshire who robs from the rich to give to the poor has emerged as one of the most enduring folk heroes in popular culture. Oh, who's editing this? No offense, but... And one of the most versatile, but how has the legend of Sherwood Forest Mary Outlaws evolved over time and did a real Robin Hood inspire these classic tales? Beginning in the 15th century and perhaps earlier, Christian revelers in certain parts of England celebrated May Days with games and plays involving a Robin Hood figure with near-religious significance. In the 19th century, writer-illustrators like Howard Pyle adapted the traditional tales for children, popularizing them in the United States and around the world. More recently, bringing Robin to the silver screen has become a rite of passages, rite of passage for directors ranging from Michael Curtis and Ridley Scott to Terry Gilliam and Mel Brooks. Throughout Robin's existence, writers, performers, and filmmakers approve their imaginations for new incarnations that resonate with their respective audiences in 14th century England, where Argarian discontent had begun to chip away at the feudal system. He appears as an anti-establishment rebel who murders government agents and wealthy landowners. Later variations from times of less social upheaval dispense with the gore and cast Robin as a dispossessed aristocrat with a heart of gold and a love interest made Marion. Academics, meanwhile, have combed the historical record for evidence of a real Robin Hood. English legal records suggest as early as the 13th century, Robe Hood or Robin Hood and other variations have become a common epithet for criminals. But what inspired these nicknames? A fictional tale? An infamous bannet? Or an amalgam, amalgam, amalgam of both? The first literary references to Robin Hood appear in a series of 14th and 15th century ballads about a violent yeoman who lived in Sherwood Forest with his men and frequently clashed with the Sheriff of Nottingham. Rather than a peasant knight or fallen noble, as in later versions, the protagonist of these medieval stories is a commoner. Little John and Will Scarlet are part of Robin's merry crew, meaning, at the time, an outlaw's gang. But Maid Marian Friar Tuck and Alan Adale would not enter the legend until later, possibly as a part of the May Day rituals. While most contemporary scholars have failed to turn up solid clues, medieval chronicleers took for granted that a historical Robin Hood lived and breathed during the 12th to 13th century. The details of their account vary widely, however, placing him in conflicting regions and eras. 
not until John Water, John, not until John Major's History of Greater Britain in 1521, for example, is he depicted as a follower of King Richard, one of his defining characteristics in modern times. We may never know for sure whether Robin Hood existed outside the verses of ballads and pages of books. Even if we did, fans young and old would surely flock to England's Nottinghamshire region for a tour of the legend's alleged former hangouts, from century-old pubs to the major oak in Sherwood Forest. What we do know is that the notion of a brave rebel who lives on the outskirts of society fighting injustice and oppression with his band of companions has universal appeal. Whether he's played by Earl Friend, Russell Crowe, or even, as on a 1979 episode of The Muppet Show, Kermit the Frog. What, what the hell is this guy got something against Kevin Costner? Um, all right, so that's uh, Real Robin Hood. There's also a, um, a website called BoldOutlaw.com that has a beginner's guide to Robin Hood written by Alan Wright. So I'll leave a link to the beginner's guide to Robin Hood, but I wanted to read about the merry men and women uh but there's some that I've never heard of, so I'm just going to skip over some of the people, okay? So I'm going to skip over some of the people, but let's, this is written by Alan W. Wright, A Beginner's Guide to the Merry Men. Uh, Robin Hood is not a lone outlaw, but the leader of a trained band of fighters. And it's a good thing, too. Robin's a le- reckless lad sometimes. He'll sneak into Nottingham once too often and get caught by the sheriff, or he'll pick a fight with the wrong traveler. And when the going gets rough, Robin blows three great blasts on his horn. Uh, that's the night watch. We haven't heard that in uh, thousands of years. That's when his merry men appear. Some say they are a small group of outlaws. Others say there were 140 to 150 merry men in Robin's band. Some tales say there was even 300 stout fellows in the band. Whatever the case, if it weren't for these sturdy yeomen and yo women. Robin wouldn't last a week. So you got little John, who I've heard of, Maid Marian, who we've heard of, Friar Tuck, who we've heard of, but then these people, I've I, I've never heard of them. So I wanted to uh, Will Scarlet. So Will Scarlet. Will has a variety of last names. Scarlet, Scarlet with two T's, Scarlock, Scadlock, and Scathaloke. By one of these names, he's a Mary a member of the Merry Men since the earliest tales. In some versions, these are separate characters. One ballad says that Robin Hood met a stranger dressed in scarlet silk. Naturally, they got into an argument. The argument led to, led to a broadsword fight. The stranger won, of course. Robin asked what the stranger's name was and where he was from. In Maxfield, I was bred and born. My name is young Gamwell. Young Gamwell had killed his father's steward and was exiled to the Greenwood. It turned out the stranger is the son of Robin's own sister. This means Will is Robin's nephew. But in the same ballad, he's called Robin's cousin. Cousin used to mean any close relative beyond the immediate family, so this term is still correct. In other stories, Will is Robin's cousin in the modern sense, son of Robin's mother's sister. Sometimes these cousins were outlawed together. When he joined the band Gamwell, which is often spelled Gamewell, was christened Will Scarlet. Immediately after he joined the Merry Men, one ballad says that Robin Hood, Little John, and Will Scarlet saved a princess from three Turkish giants. 
For the good deed, Rob and his men were pardoned, and the princess chose to marry Will Scarlet. Will it was reconciled with his father, the Earl of Maxfield. Will Scarlet can be a scarlet-clad dandy obsessed with fashion and even carrying a rose. Sometimes he was even musical. But the early Will Scarlet was as violent and grubby as the other merry men. Some modern versions have returned to that tradition. Will Scathlock is his real name. Will was a mercenary, but his wife was attacked by other mercenaries. Crying, calling himself Scarlet, well, you know, Will got revenge. He's hot-tempered, questions Robin's leadership. Whatever his name or nature, Will is a welcome member of the Merry Men. Next in importance after Robin and Little John, his vice is considered valuable. Next up, Much, the Miller's son. Much is mentioned quite a bit in the earlier stories. Some call him Midge or even Nick, the Miller's son. Sometimes Much and Midge are different people. Originally, Much was strong enough to carry Little John, and he was violent enough to do bad things. But nowadays, Much is seen as a young, innocent character who is not too bright. In one book, he's only 12, the son of a much older... Son of an older Much the Miller. Huh. Many films show Much killing a deer, a severe offense against the forest laws. The Norman Norman overlords are about to deal with him when Robin intervenes and saves him. Much joins the Merry Men. Another story makes Mudge or Midge an, a tradesman who is stopped by Robin Hood. The young Miller was carrying a great sack of flour and Robin suspected he might have gold in the sack. Much opened the sack and tossed flour in Robin's face. Then, like so many people before him, Much beat the stuffing out of bold Robin. Of course, Robin asks much to join the Merry Men. Sadly, if there's a Merry Man who's left out of the stories these days, it's much. Even so, he appears in some tales and is often the useful, youthful mascot of the band, and perhaps its soul. Well, Hoppy gives us a little taste of Much the Miller in uh, Game of Thrones, so that's nice. And there's one last person I hear never heard of, Alan Adale. Alan's only an occasional merry man showing up late in the legend. Still, he is popular. Sometimes, as a narrator of the stories, his name is spelled in a variety of ways. My name's Alan. This is a quote from him. So I know just how many ways there are to spell. Oh, no, this is the writer's name. Speller misspelled the name. Robin came across a happy man in scarlet clothing. Amazingly, Robin didn't start a fight, but then the next day he saw the man depressed and unhappy. He asked the man what was wrong. Alan was to marry his true love that very day, but instead she was given to an old, cruel, rich knight. The young man said he'd be Robin's servant if the outlaw could save his true love. Disguising himself as a bold harper, Robin snuck into the ceremony. He blew on his horn and summoned the other merry men with Alan and Dale in the lead. They stopped the wedding, crossing the knight and the bishop. Then little John put on the bishop's clothes and married Alan and his true love. Others have Tuck performing the wedding service, which would certainly make it more official. Alan has wife has been given many different names, although Alan seems to be the most common. Hi, this is Alan and Alan, Alan and Alan, Alan and Alan, Alan and Alan, Alan and Alan. Yeah. 
tough. Uh, so there's an early reference to the tale where it's Will Scarlet's bride who was rescued. Since both Will and Alan dress in Scarlet, they can be confused, and sometimes both are musicians. Usually, a- Alan doesn't serve the married men as a fighter. Instead, he's a minstrel provising, providing musical entertainment for the outlaw feasts. Alan also spins tales of Robin's deeds, spreading the bold outlaw fra- flame, fame, spreading the bold outlaw's fra- fame throughout the land. In most tales, Alan is a master musician, but in one television show, he's hopelessly tone deaf. So that's a little more about the Merry Men. And I guess it still kind of reminds me that the Brother Without Banners is more badass. Uh, and then they kind of have the two-headed leadership going. So, well, let's, we'll see how it goes in Season 3 and Season 5. All right? I'm, I'm glad to have them, though. Keep things interesting. And plus, I, you know, I like the guy that kind of reminds me of... Uh, the child of uh, William Hurt, Jeff Daniels, and Jeff Bridges. That's always nice, you know? I'm going to put this at the end, but this might gross you out. So if you're awake and you're, uh, you're easily grossed out, you know, just skip this, go to bed, or, you know, put on another podcast, rewind it. But um, at the beginning, towards the beginning of the episode, uh, Jamie accidentally drinks horse piss. And then it made me think, you know, I got to be honest, you know, with these things, I was like, well... Is is it true? Like people say, oh, urine's stale. You could drink your own urine if you need to, or stale, sterile. I meant, or pee on jellyfish cuts or whatever the hell. So I, you know, I was like, all right, let's crack this. Let's uh, let's like uh, let's not get to the bottom of it, but let's examine it right below the surface, like I'm good at. So I, I uh, found a lot of stuff, but this is from Science News, a magazine for the Society. Of, for science and the public. So this could be some shady organization or it could be, I don't know. I don't, you know, it's a scratch in the surface. Gory details, it's called. It's uh, urine is not sterile and neither is the rest of you. And it's by Erica Engelhaupt. And it's from May 22nd, 2014. Underneath the picture is uh, says, don't do it. Urinating on a wound to clean it after emergency has become fodder for urban legends, but new Research debunks the idea that urine is sterile. Uh, let's say you find yourself at the bottom of a ravine with a dirt-filled gash in your leg. According to the Internet, the first thing you want to do is pee on your wound. Uh, after all, the common wisdom holds urine is sterile. Okay, hold up. Uh, how? How are you going to—how would you pee on a, a dirt-filled gash in your leg? Um, no matter what sex you are, that's really hard. I mean, if it's on your, so, you know, anyway, uh, wrong again, internet, urine is not sterile. Uh, even before it comes out of you and gets contaminated by your skin, bacteria are present at low levels in the urine of healthy people not suffering from a urinary tract infection. Evan Hilt of Loyola University of Chicago reported May 18th at a, co- a conference for the American Sci- Society of Microbiology. Now Hilton and her colleagues are figuring out what bacteria make up the normal bladder community and whether a change in that community might trigger urinary problems. Uh, why the hell did it take them so long to figure this shit out is my question. Next question. 
But let's just go with the article. Now that we know they're there, the question is, well, my question is, what the hell were you doing before this? Uh, their question is, what are they doing, Hilt says. Most likely, she says, it's like on any other niche on your body. You have good flora that keeps you healthy. It appears that the urban legend about urine being sterile has its roots in the 1950s, Hilt says, when epidemiologist Edward Cass was looking for a way to screen patients for urinary tract infections before surgery. Cass developed a midstream urine test, still used when you pee in a cup, and set a numerical cutoff for the num number of bacteria in normal urine, not more than 100,000 units per millimeter of urine. A person tests negative for bacteria in their urine as long as the number of bacteria that grow in a lab dish containing the urine falls below this threshold. It appears that the dogma that urine is sterile was an unintended consequence, Hilt said. So it was sterile if you had 99,999,000 colony-forming uh, units per millimeter of urine. Oh, boy. Um, Hildner colleagues used a more sensitive growth culture, gross culture this is, though, technique to detect the low levels of bacteria in normal urine, reasoning that maybe some urinary bacteria don't, and horses have huge bladders, so geez, like, can you imagine, don't drink horse pee, I guess, uh, reasoning that the, some urinary bacteria don't grow laterally under conditions of the standard test, having already found bacteria Bacterial genetic material in urine, as did another team in their latest work. They used catheters to collect urine directly from the bladders of 84 women, half of whom had overactive bladder syndrome. I wonder who's paying for this study, huh? Which causes patients to have to urinate frequently? They put on samples of the they put this uh, they put samples of urine in lab dishes and let the urine bacteria grow under friendlier conditions. More than 70% of the urine samples contain bacteria, including at least 33 types of bacteria in normal urine. Women with overactive, batter, ba women with overactive bladders had more types of bacteria in the urine, 77 in general, including four species only found in overactive. This is going to make people paranoid. And no reason to worry, guys. Just don't drink it, I guess. This is, this is my message. The finding might provide hope for the 15%. This is an advertisement of women who suffer from overactive bladder. Many aren't helped by the standard therapy that treats the condition as a purely muscular problem. Like I said, that's hope. Uh, learning the, that urine is not sterile also changes the way we think about infection. It's generally been assumed that if there is bacteria in your urinary tract, you have an infection, and that's a bad thing. But if there, okay, so now we're getting into positive territory. But if there is a normal community of bacteria, can you define normal? Are they like, uh, you know, nuclear? We may need to think about the bladder more in the way we have recently learned to think about the gut microbiome in terms of healthy and unhealthy mixes of bacteria. It's not clear anymore what body parts are actually sterile. I'll tell you right now, I'm not a scientist. It's none, all right? How fucking hard is that? Oh, boy, somebody's fired up. Uh, the placenta was a long thought to be, but scientists have just learned that's not true. Uh, we're called human beings. 
There's nothing sterile about us, holy. You should see my thoughts. Uh, they found bacteria on the baby's side of the placenta. There's also some evidence that babies are born with bacteria already in their guts, which must have gotten through the placenta. What about brains? Surely the brain cases, not my brain cases, bacteria-free. The last bacteria-free bastion protected by the blood-brain barrier. Sadly, that's not the case either. When I asked neuroscientist writer Laura Sander if our brains are sterile, she promptly said, Oh no, brains full of all kinds of junk. That includes viruses. Last year, in fact, researchers reported finding soil bacteria. <laughs> oh God. Last year, in fact, researchers reported finding soil bacteria in people's brains. That's all the dirt I ate as a child. Uh, mud pies. Don't eat your own mud pies. Definitely. I mean, of course it's going to get in your brain. You put dirt on your eyes. Or accidentally, not on purpose. Uh, before making a dirty mind joke, these were alpha Protobacteria normally found in soil, but there's no reason to think soil got in, in, into anyone's brain. I got a case of soil brain. I mean, no doubt about it. Like, uh, you know, contaminated soil brain, as a matter of fact. These researchers were studying whether people with a compromise, compromised immune system from HIV AIDS might be prone to brain infections. Instead, they found all brains they looked at contained bacteria. Again, no shit. But I guess the scientists, you got to back it up with facts, not like me, but I'm just like judging and, and yelling and swearing without facts or actually even knowledge. Regardless of HIV status, no one knows how the bacteria get in there or when. Could they be leftovers from fetal development? Your eyeballs, probably. I don't know. Lucky tricksters that make it through the blood, blood, blood. Lucky tricksters that make it through the blood-brain barrier. What is that like? The uh, Indiana Jones of uh, bacteria? Uh, we don't know. And just like our bladders, we don't even want to know. We don't even know what to consider normally. Yet. So back to our original question: If urine isn't sterile, does that mean you should pee on, shouldn't pee on a wound? Well, that's probably never a great idea anyway. If you don't have clean water, yeah, just, just fucking leave the dirt on it. What do you? Dirt's cleaner than pee. I mean, shit. Uh, lots of swearing tonight. Uh, if you don't have a clean wound, you're better off generally letting the blood flow, flush a wound, bathing it in the infection-fighting white blood cells. Uh, but if knowing bacteria, there are bacteria in urine helps you talk a well-meaning friend out of peeing on you in an emergency, well, you're welcome. So thank you, Erica. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to uh, bash you. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm in a bad mood, I guess. And I guess, like, uh, it seems to me that, uh, I don't yeah, I'm not that bright a guy, so don't don't take my criticism to heart. Seriously, I have a boring podcast, and I can be an angry person, so I'm sorry. Yeah, hopefully you won't hear this, and, uh, I mean, yeah, you shouldn't, I, I would hope, but, you know, I'm, I apologize, honestly. Uh, sorry. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Tommen, and I have uh, 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 been called a prince and a king, uh, Tommen, always Tommen, though. But I have, you know, those are when titles I have had. 
but the title I am most proud of is Best Friend, for I am the best friend of one Sir Pounce, and I believe I don't need to tell you that when Sir Pounce names his best friend, he names me, Sir, Sir Tommen, Sir Tommen and Sir Pounce Adventurers, and I am also lucky enough to be the teller of the tale, tales, uh, what's well, you know? I think we've covered it. Sir Pounce only has one tail. He's has one time. Oh, what was it, Joffrey? He said, uh, "Burn down that farmhouse. I want the. There's a cat that lives there with two tails. I want it." And the hound said, "I I don't. I'm a man." He said, "Uh, I don't. You know, I I could just get the cat." He said, "Well, what do you need with me, Lord? And what do you need with a cat with two tails? Is a." Sounds like witchcraft, and uh, it turned out it was just two cats standing close to one another. Whole mess. Uh, mother said, "Oh, your brother. I don't know who who keeps me up later at night. You, your brother, my brother." And she said, "Whoops!" And I said, "What? What do you mean, mother?" And she said, "Never mind." But anyway, I'm here to talk to you. A continuing tale of myself and Sir Pounce and the merman, for when we last left off, we were on a beach, talking to a clam, a giant clam, who was, uh, you know, very fun to be with. And he said, he said, these guys, these um, sea monkey mermen are taking our pearls, stealing them. Go to the, the kelp forests and uh, and and find Kelpolina and, and go and save our pearls. So Sir Pounce and I we went to the kelp forest, but it was underwater. I said, "What is it? How are we going to get under? We're supposed to be be able to go underwater to uh, get underwater." And Sir Pounce said, "Wonderful rain." And I said, "I'm sorry." And he began tapping as the water with his paw tapped. Tapping, tapping, tap, tap, tapping with his paw. Well, almost lapping, but with a with a paw. And if you ever seen a cat drink a milk out of his hand, it's it's quite amazing, I believe. But this time he had his paw down. He's just pap, slapping the water, I'd say. And I said, "So, bounce. What are you doing?" He's and then out of the depth came a hand, a kelp-covered hand, and it's, it was saying, you know, come with me, more or less a symbol. And I said, Who, what is that doing? What does that want? And at first I was afraid, but Sapan said, wah, 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 wah. sometimes Sapan sings a bit. And, wah, 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 wah. and I said, oh. I said, oh, that is uh, the, the song that calms me, Sapan. And he said, what's wrong? So we followed the hand, and it was a bit slimy. We wandered into the kelp forests. And then we went under the water, and suddenly I and Sir Pounce were under the water. I was not cold. I did not have water in my nose, which happened another time with Jif Joff. I won't talk about it now, but then they saw this woman, well, a woman, a, uh, a feminine fish creature. Confu- I was c- already confused, but then I said, um, "So, Pounce, what is this feeling in my in my in my hips?" Because as I look at this cr- creature calling us, I say that is not a, a, a hu- human 
but I, 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 I remember what you did with your hips, Pounce. And he said, Frank, from yeah, the pearls, basically, he said to Tom, and we got to get, get the pearls. And I said, oh, okay. So we went to Kalpalina, and I said, oh, we are here to uh, get the, and she, she just made a bubbling sound. And I said, oh, I don't, uh, I guess I don't speak kelp. And I said, my, hel- my hips feel strange, Kalpalina. When I look at you, also, uh, this part of my stomach here, the top of it, it, it's vibrating in some way. Usually, when I'm afraid, it vibrates like that, but at a lower depth. No, I noticed fish and otters were looking at me. And she she giggled, and the bubbles came out, and I said, Okay, we, we have to go get the, uh, how do we go... And she said, you kept talking in bubbles, and I said, Pounce, so Pounce, what, what does she mean? She said, why, Serene? And I said, what, Serene? What, why? I cannot understand you under the water. And then Sir Pounce just swam off, and I said, oh, Kelpaline is pointing at what looks to be a whirlpool. And I said, oh, dear, but I started to get sucked into the whirlpool, and it went around and around and around. And around and around. And I said, oh, this is like the time. And I said, oh, no, this, the fair, the machine at the fair. The mother mother chopped that man's hands off. But she, it was a spinning machine some man had made and charged children to ride on. And I threw up for days. But then Sir Pounce was in my arms. And I said, oh, I will not fear spinning around and feeling gross. It will be fine, and we spun and spun, and so even Sir Pounce clutched at me with just as he's so good, he, he could clutch me without without using his claws because he is such a wonderful cat. And the next thing you know, we tumbled out of the bottom of this whirlpool, and we saw a great kingdom where many towers of shells and things. At least it looked it looked like a great kingdom, and it had a towering, towering statues of, of wise-looking, like the climate told me. It looks like a man and a in a some sort of sea creature combined. And I said, Sir Pounce, what is this place? He said, and I said, yeah, I don't know either, buddy. And he led the way, and we walked through this archway, and that's when I realized that it was not real. It was a painting made to look like it. And as soon as we went through the painting, it was a hole. It looked like we were going into a castle. We were on the other side, and it was just, just this gross place. With uh, where where many uh, I guess maybe when uh, people ripped down I I don't know it was like uh, wagon wheels and broken pottery and gross things like leaking out liquids that were brown and uh, children's toy I said wait a second is that my toy are we near and I said, so Pounce said, right, right, right. I said, oh, we're not near where I once lived in another world. But it was like, it was very sad. And then we saw eyes watching us from the piles of trash and garbage. 
many uh what do you call those things uh, wood pieces of wood and uh it was just, it was just uh, looked like a place i said suppose i think i've seen this place before and it was outside of flea bottom in a dream and he said, well, I said, oh, yeah, it's not underwater, and that doesn't exist, that place I just said, or any of the people I've referred to, all part of my fictional tale. Anyway, so we seen, I said, uh, I said, today, could I be the hero this time, Sapansi somewhere? And I said, Mer- Merman, Merman, we are here at the behest of Kelpalina, and a, a big old clam. Who, uh, who, who, uh, what was it? Suppose, did he have a name, that clam? Anyway, uh, Kelpalina told us, or something like that, my men. So we are here to take back the pearls and, uh, you know, don't cause us any... Tr- well, what if they... What will we do? I have Sir Pouncey here. He has claws of 20. Well, 10 that he could really do damage with. So I don't want any trouble. Plus, I have been known to scream and cause agita. They say, agita, you don't make... So don't make me drop any agita. Or hold my breath till you say, No more, please, no more, please, no more. No more time alone with this boy so disturbed. Please don't make me watch him, because I will stay here in your kingdom, turning blue, screaming. Uh, Another thing they used to say is, What is coming out of his mouth? What is, if his mother sees that, she'll have us all. So things can come out of my mouth that are weird. Or, you know, and then even the maester, he says, Your questions are driving me batty. I'm about to throw myself off the ramparts. Uh, And that was actually four different maesters said that to me. The same words, you believe that, keep it going, keep it going. And I said, so, mermen, that is the, uh, the bargain I propose to strike. What do you think about this? A pouncy, super. Nisa, me. And I said, I think I, I, I'm not sure about the meaning of bargain, but I will turn blue. Sapounts will claw you, and then I will ask many. What Sapounts? Should I start asking questions? And then the, the mermen, they started to swim out, and they were, as the had uh, said, they looked like little toys that I would love to play with. And I said, oh, look at these guys, about, they are almost as cute as you, or kitten. Uh, but they are also uh, something about them that seems false. And then I realized very quickly, some say that I, I have a gift. For sensitivity. Oh, you're so sensitive. And yes, I said, my sensitivity said, these things are not what they seem, Sir Pounce. And Sir Pounce was already uh, sniffing around. I caught him and I said, these are not real. What is this? And I realized that inside, and I think that maybe the, the, the climate had sold us this, but in that the, the uh, little cute little creatures were painted shells. 
and they were somehow I think the juice, the spit of the little fishies, they they shrimp they called them I think, were inside of these, and they they said, well, and I said, what is this? This? And they looked at Sapounce and they looked at me, and I said, uh, let's just play along, Sapounce. Let's play along. They said, you people are so cute. And they actually, they said, what are you people? And I said, oh, you're so quiet for such a big face, such a big, cute face. Why is your voice so quiet? And they said, why are you, what do you guys call yourself? What are you, why, is that a, and I said, this is Sapounce. He's a cat and a best friend. And I am Sapounce, some call me a boy. Some say I should be a man at this age. And I just say I'm the best friend of Sapounce, and we are the best friends. We are here as, you know, non-best friend duty, but friendship, uh, spirit of friendship. Return the uh, pearls, and uh, if you could, maybe I could understand the feelings I'm having for Kelpalina, uh, because I can't stop thinking about uh, the blue scales and I say to myself in my mind, I'm trying to concentrate on this whole thing, but I say, what is under those scales? Uh, is that tail like a dress? Could I scoot under there? Or Why do I want to do that? What is that? Who said that in my head? And I said, uh, what? And then my hands say, oh, oh, to have, oh, to have Kelpaline. And I say, who, who said that? What is this feeling? Anyway, that is the kind of thing if you guys don't give us the pearls. But uh, what, what, did you have a question? And it was silent for a while. And they said, Cat, best friend. What is a best friend? We want a best friend. And I said, why did you take... If you want friends, why do you steal pearls? And they said, uh, to make a beautiful kingdom, you know... You, you've seen where we live. We want a beautiful kingdom, and we need money to build it so we can have great buildings and great things, and we will have a wonderful place, and people will come see, and they will be our friends, and they will see our tall shell buildings and our wonderful playful faces. And I said, oh, boy, Sapounce, it's a good thing I am taking care of this one, for I am familiar with what is happening here. Now, now you, you, you might say to yourselves, we are mermen. We have a proud kingdom. We look like monkey people under the sea with our silly faces. And you may be able to fool each other or fool yourselves. But I got to tell you, there was once a boy I knew about. Uh, merman, and he was a boy. He had no friends. He had a father who fell down the stairs many times, and a mother who said, uh, "Leave me and your uncle be." I said, uh, or you know, said what you know. Many things that made this boy say, Oof, "I will never have a friend." And then one day, my sister. She found a little kitty cat all alone, and she snuck it into my room, and she said, Tommen, this is a kitty cat. Could you take care of it before, you know, the smells in your room, no one will, will come in here to search for it, or they'll say, they won't say it smells strange like a cat because of the different, you know, what's going on with you. So she said, would you like to keep this cat? 
And she said, realize it's alive and you have to treat it with respect. And she taught me all those things as I raised this little kitty cat. And one day she said, Tom, what would you like to name this cat? For, for he jumps on you and he licks you. And this cat and I, we became very close, but, but not because of what he saw in me, but for what I, how I helped him and how I learned to respect him and not say, well, what would happen if I, you know, I was wondering how, you know, things I wondered about my sister said, you can't do that with a living cat, Tom. And, and she said, well, what would you name this cat? I said, I'm going to name it Sapounce. Uh, and she said, Sapounce. And I said, yes, he is brave and he likes to pounce on my face, on my hands, and on little bugs and things. And she said, that is so wonderful. And then one day, that boy and that cat became greatest, the greatest friends once, you know, they chose friendship. For they enjoyed being with each other and having fun and adventures and listening as I told him, oh, I was say, what's that? Many things, many secrets of what I saw. I said, is that, wow, is that Uncle Jamie's bottom? What is that thing with my, and I, he says, so pounds will this, he said, well, so don't think about that anymore. Don't ask the maester about that. So uh, that is how you get friends. You don't get friends by stealing pearls and building kingdoms. And don't get friends by making fake shell bodies, as brilliant as that is. And as much as it makes me say, could you make me a shell body? That, that's, and they said, well, we could. And I said, well, that's how you have a friendship. And we got shell bodies, and we fought battles with the merman, and we broke a couple of their houses by accident. Because I said, oh, you live here? This is banana peels. Old banana peels. But we had fun, and I and they said, we don't, I said, you don't need these shell bodies to have a friends. Now you have friends. And they said, best friends? I said, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, but you have a friends, and you are your, each other's best friends. You have to figure that out. And I mean, Sapounce need to be off. And we return the shell, the uh, pearls to the clams. And I, I I cannot talk any more about the strain. Maybe one day I'll be able to talk more about, you know, the pearls we gave uh, Kelpalina saying thank you because she sang in her bubbling tones. But that is something I keep for myself. When I, at night I cannot sleep, I listen to Kelpalina sing in my heart and feel feel things that are unfamiliar but good. So that is a tale of Sapounce and Tommen and the Mermen and the Pearls and the Clams and Gabalina and Strange Feelings. And I'm glad you were here to listen and we will be back soon to tell you more about a boy and his cat and best friends a cat and a boy I've ever had. Thank you. Uh, Crone, Sweet Sweet Crone, Miller Smith, Barky, Jester. That's me um, coming in for an update or uh, a check-in, I guess. I'm not sure. Well, I don't know what I was going to talk to you guys about tonight because you know, I didn't hear back from you about about uh, Whiplash or 
Better Call Saul, episode three was out. I watched episode three. I don't know if you, what you guys thought about that. I don't know. Maybe we should talk about uh, transportation and rules like that in case you guys do come into the world without me being there. There was this movie one time where I think maybe it was Michael Keaton. Maybe Christopher Lloyd might have been. He was like uh, driving around a bus of, uh, you know, people that were um, eccentric types. I think they were committed to institution. So don't, you know, you guys should stay close to me. But they had a bunch of adventures and stuff. Um, but I, I'm, uh, so, so I'm thinking, so so back in your day, uh, you guys, there's a lot of walking, I'm assuming. I don't know how God's traveled, to be honest. Uh, but if I'm just thinking if you take human form or you want to pretend you're human, I'll give you some tips, you know. Because, yeah, do you guys fly? Do you just, like, teleport? Do you know what those words mean? Like, do you say, hey, I want to be uh, with my buddy watching Whiplash invisibly without saying any thank yous, without even a whiff of, or, you know, without chipping in for the cable bill, which I have to call every month to say, hey, this is, I'm paying $80. Uh, that's what the person said uh, two months ago. Why is it 126.98? Well, because it's going to be plan B, it's plan C, plan what? No, 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 no. Uh, say, God, save your chat logs. That's all I can tell you. I said, well, I got the chat log. It says it right here. Well, she wasn't approved to offer that. Well, I'm sorry. I'm not approved to... Uh, uh, you know, stay calm much longer, but, uh, you know, so are you going to honor this price? Okay. But this is, you know, takes the third or second or third person usually. And then I say, well, I just saved 20. How long did that take me? $26 was that window. And then it's like, oh, no, it's $36. That's pretty good. And 36 times 12 is a lot of money. Gods. So it is worth it. Um, Okay, so I don't know how you guys get that's that was like a sidetrack gods uh, about bills. We'll we'll get into that. Um but so they have these things let's see, so you guys had wagons, walking, horses, boats. We'll stay away from boats today. Ooh, I don't know what else you guys had. maybe some beasts of burden riding, elephants, water you guys had water buffalo? The big horns, they're cool, cool, but regular buffalo. I don't know if people ride red. Well, red did anybody ride red, regular buffalo or bison? They call them. Some people call them bison. But so, um, bison, they say they has higher protein, lower saturated fat. God, so I don't know. Again, that's if you guys communicated with me, I'd know. Oh, well, we don't have uh, you know circulatory system, or it's only an illusion. Or we do take human form, so we could suffer from heart disease. So any of these tips would be relevant to us because, you know, the crone, she took a human form. She used to be the, uh, you know, something else. And then she took human form too long. And she's macular degeneration or something. So, you know, you guys got to keep me up to date, okay? But I know it's not the mysterious ways in which you guys work, the wonderful Wonderful, mysterious ways. Thanks, yeah. So anyway, transportation here is a lot more complicated. And uh, I think I remember Captain Kirk getting scared by something like a horned. But so we do walk here. Some people hate walk. America gods, uh, 
they hate walking here. Like, uh, well, I mean, I guess I can't speak for everybody. I love, I'm a big walker, but Americans they don't walk as much as. Uh, but the walking's making a comeback, and it's like have a good walk. And uh, I just took I just took a couple wicked walks today, guys. Uh, well, you were there, maybe, maybe not. Remember when we were walking on the beach, Crone? And I said, let me take off your shoes for you. And then I ended up, that wasn't you. She said, don't touch my feet. I will call the police. I said, oh, sorry, I thought you were the crone. What did you call me? I said, and uh turns out that Park District has their own police department. So uh, luckily I'm good at burying myself in the sand so they couldn't find me. Um, but we walk. We we don't walk as much as we could, but um, people walk, so that's one way to get around. Uh, you got to follow the rules, and uh, ma- main thing is uh, red red means stop, green means go. Watch out for bikes, which uh, I don't I don't know. This is tough, guys. This teaching you stuff. I'm not a um. Uh, normally, this is might be just a personal preference, God. Stay on the fucking right, all right, uh, of the path. Uh, uh, you know, just like you were in a car, which we'll get to. I don't know if we'll get to it tonight, God's, because I feel like I'm about to go on a walking ramp. But I don't know why I can't stay on the right. So I'm talking, God's, I walk from, you know, you were there. We walked the beach path, and we walked on the beach. Then back to the path, walking path. They call it a walking path because it's for walking. It used to be they added that bike lane and uh, used to be for bikes and walkers. That didn't go well for anybody. And uh, now they have the bike lane. Now people are crying about that. The, why, why, you know, what is their bike? Yeah, for bikes, you idiot. You take your car and shove it up your ass, all right? Um, sorry, guys. Uh but anyway, um, walking, it's a pleasant, really relaxing thing normally. I don't know why I get so irritable, but um, stay on the right. Another thing is don't block the sidewalk if you're talking. One, if you're talking on your phone, I might, you know, check you. And you, please don't obstruct the sidewalk, okay? If your dog's going to the bathroom, step to the side of the path. If uh, you're chatting it up, like, make room for others. Like, what the hell? Like, the world didn't stop so that you could talk about your fucking grape nuts, okay? Um, and not that you... Well, Crone, you might need grape nuts. We'll find out about that. I don't even know if they do anything. I, I remember this one time, Crone. So they had these... They had this stuff called grape nuts. It's some kind of cereal. Sounds delicious, right? I mean, to me, it did. It said grape nuts. That sounds great. And I remember waiting, and it was said, Mom, can we get some grape nuts? She said, no, you won't like them. I said, I will, I promise. She said, no. I remember I was dreaming about it. I said, one day I'm going to have these grape nuts. And I slept over at this kid's house. I remember before, you know, some point I saw his mom open the cover. I said, well, there's those grape nuts in there. And I, and I said, holy shit, these, these guys got grape nuts. It's a cereal. God, it's Miller. Miller, you probably know what it is. And I said, I can't wait to get my hands on these grave nuts. It's going to change my life. And I told my buddy, I said, this was fifth, fourth, fifth grade. I said, hey, what do you think about a late, late, late night snacks, some grape nuts? And he just, he's like, I'm not allowed late night snacks. 
I said, grape nuts, buddy, come on. And he said, ah, grape nuts are gross. I said, no, they're not, man. They're the greatest thing ever. I said, they're not actual real grape seeds, right? And he said, no, that would be really gross. I said, yeah, I've eaten them before. I made my own grape nuts, and it was really gross. But I, So I figured these have got to be great. Um, like, the ads are on TV. And he said, I'm not allowed to leave. And I said, well, okay, why don't you go to sleep? I'll tell you a boring story, pal. Okay, doesn't sound, the house sounds quiet now. Unfortunately, I'm not quiet at sneaking around, but I'm going to sneak downstairs and fix myself some grape nuts. And then I poured a bowl of grape nuts in a bowl. I don't know, God, that's like an ad for grape nuts until the next next moment. When I pour the milk in there and then I take a, a spoon, probably making way too much racket than I should have because it's not my house. And, and then I taste the grape nuts and they're terrible. I said, oh, what a letdown. Where do they keep the sugar? Maybe if I put about 40 tablespoons in sugar in here, it'll be edible. Tastes like, um, uh, doesn't have the bitterness of grape nuts, which is actually a downside because it has no taste, I think. Grip, grit, grit, grit crap, they should call it. And then I'm searching for the sugar and I get busted. And this guy's parents, they weren't exactly, uh, they, 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 they weren't psychos. They were, you know, uh, milk toast, I guess, maybe. So, oh, what are you doing down here, Andy? Oh, uh, I, uh, uh, I was just pouring these grape nuts, full bowl, you know, triple serving of grape nuts. Uh, uh, you going to eat that? Well, I, I, it was a, a goat. Why are you eating our grape nuts? Did you did you ask? Why don't you ask for things in your? Oh, so, oh God! What am I gonna? How am I gonna get out of this one? Oh yeah, I'm gonna eat these grape nuts. I was just trying to get some. Uh, I'm gonna sing about the grape nuts. And they said, "Well, what do you have to say for yourself?" I said, "Well, I'm just gonna." Eat these. Why are you up? It's like, isn't it like, uh, they said it's 945 and we heard all this noise down here. And I said, well, I asked uh, my friend. He said I could have some. And they said, really? I said, no. Uh, I said, well, are you going to eat those grape nuts? I said, yeah, why don't you go back to bed? I'm going to eat them. I'll be down here. Well, I don't trust you in our kitchen anymore. Well, yeah, I just like to eat. You know, I, have a, I like to eat my cereal alone. So if you could give me some privacy, I'd appreciate it. Um why pour this in there? Do you have a garbage disposal? Where's the switcher? Just just in case I uh, don't worry. I want you know. I'm just curious if there's like a garbage emergency. I need to know where the garbage disposal is. Okay, well let's just pour it in. The sink. I guess you don't want to answer that question. We'll just pour it in the sink anyway. Uh, all right, great, good talk. Uh, grape nuts are getting soggy. I'd like some privacy. No? Okay, well, I guess I'd eat these. And that was the end of the grape nuts. Yeah, now, Miller, no offense. I know you cry. But I was like a kid. I was used to sugared cereals. And I said, why you call, Why the hell do you call them grape nuts uh, if they don't have a grape flavoring or a ton of sugar in there to, like, replicate some grape? I know they're supposed to be healthy, but that's what the freaking grains are for, right, right, Miller? But, you know, have some common decency to call it, to not get kids mixed up. If you're going to put it on TV, I believe that stuff. 
So that was the end of the Grape Nuts Gods. Pretty sure I'm pretty sure that was the last sleepover at that house. And then that was the same kid. Got, I mean, uh, Crone, close your ears, uh, please. I don't know if I told this story to you, Gods, but uh, first time I got my hands on some porn, uh, this was the kid that ratted me out. Uh, so I don't know if, you know, I'm not too vengeful. Long story short was I got beat up pretty bad because the kid that gave it to me, he said, you know, and it wasn't even hardcore stuff, Gods. I mean, it was like... As a young male, trying to find my, make my way in understanding the nudity. And, and I also like the, the, it had the, it was one of those, one, it was magazines, gods, and it had sexy, like, stories and letters, which maybe brought me to where I am today. Anyway, gods, this kid, I already had the grape nut incident, and then it wasn't much longer when I brought that stuff to summer camp. One time, only time I got to go to summer camp, too, because I blew that, too. And then I was, you know, I had, you know, anyway, guys, it was not. And I said, you know, and then, I, you know, he told his mom on me. And then my, my mom went crazy. Holy moly, mom, I hope you're not listening because uh, there's uh, so mom, mom, you and the crone cover your ears. I lied. She said, throw up, go get those horrible magazines. Meanwhile, I said, she said, where are they? I said, hidden in the woods. They were in my um, sleeping bag, actually. But I sold a lot of it at the summer camp for, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, fudgicles. Nowadays, gods, this stuff would have been on the news. It wasn't that bad, though. It got natural, right, right, uh, oh, maybe, right, maiden. Well, maybe not. Maybe you wouldn't like it. You wouldn't appreciate it. I can see I was just a boy. Okay, guys, that's my excuse. Grape nuts, nudity. Uh boy. I thought we were talking about walking here, but I guess I got taken off track somehow. Um, so those are lessons you can learn, guys. Cereal. Miller, I don't know if you're pro- you know, if you want to sell more grains, of course you're going to be pro. Uh, um, even in some of those places, call themselves General Millers or something. Um, but I don't know how you f- feel about that, Miller. I would prefer that people love their grains before and after they eat it without a ton of sugar added. But, you know, I don't know. You know, you're the Miller. I can't uh, mess with you. Uh, I shouldn't have told you guys that story about the porn, but... It just came out and said, well, yeah, we, they, we, while I was telling, I was like, man, this, that was the same kid who he told on me. And, man, that kid, the kid was mad because the other kid they got it from, I remember I said, hey, a long, whole long story, gods. But I talked him into it. He said, I don't want to give you this stuff. You know, it's going to come back to haunt me. He was a couple years older than me. He said, if I ever, you know. If you ever get caught, don't tell anyone. But I had told this kid, he said, where'd you get this stuff? It's crazy. And I said, this, this, you know, this older kid that, you know, kid that smokes cigarettes and, you know, drinks gasoline. And, you know, he was one of the BB kids. Well, he technically wasn't one of the BB kids. That's a whole nother story, guys. But, uh, yeah, so he was mad. And that cut off my, you know, that was like cut off my budding sexuality, gods, because I had, you know, 
straight porn connection, uh, you know, direct, direct, you know, not soaked. Like, because then you, then you got to go back and search the woods for porn. This is before you could, you could get on the Internet and just look at it all the time, God's years ago. So, you know, I, I guess that story doesn't apply anymore. So to you, God's, if you're going to be in this modern world. So that's it, guys. That's, uh, oh boy, I just closed too much here. But what are you going to do, guys? I, sh- I should have stuck to getting angry about walking. So that's transportation in a nutshell, guys. Uh, uh, lesson one of transportation of many, okay?